0: I'm Kathy with a C.
1: And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Happy New Year, everybody.
2: Happy 2023.
1: Kathy and I just toasted to episode 70. Ah! And I almost fell out of my chair.
2: (laughs) That was the alcohol.
1: (laughs) So we hope you have a fantastic 2023 health, happiness, every good thing. Exactly. And we are starting 2023 by an admission of procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> but we have updates on episodes for this 70th podcast, which I can't even believe. I know. And so we should have probably done these in 2022. But here we go. Yeah. <laughs> we
2: actually meant to do them in 2022. Right.
1: We <laughs> intended. And therefore, it's okay.
2: So just as a general caveat for these episodes... If you have not listened to them already, we would recommend you do so. Mm -hmm. We will give you a brief background before we give you the update.
1: And we say brief, that's in quotes, because it's not really that brief. But anyway, we
2: like to talk. (laughs) So it's going to happen again. Exactly. But please listen to the episodes if you haven't done so. And away we go. This is an update of episode 41, in which we talked about the 2002 double murders of Mike Sisko and Karen Harkness in Topeka, Kansas.
1: Mike Sisko, who was 47 years old, was a divorced father with two teenagers, Haley and Dustin, and he sold welding equipment for a living. He was dating 53-year-old Karen Harkness and had been doing so for four years. She was divorced as well and the mother of two adult children. So on Sunday, July 7, 2002, Karen and Mike were supposed to host Karen's mom and dad for a Sunday fish fry. Everyone expected Mike and Karen to announce their engagement, However, when Karen's parents arrived at her home, her father found her dead on the bed with five gunshot wounds. Mike was dead on the floor next to the bed, having suffered seven gunshot wounds, and there was no sign of robbery or forced entry. Family and friends immediately cast suspicion on Dana Chandler. She was Mike's ex-wife, and they'd been divorced for five years and actually had been married a full 16 years. The divorce was long and ugly, and Dana actually lost custody of Haley and Dustin because the court ruled that Mike was the more stable parent and awarded him full custody.
2: So at the time of the murders, Dana was living in Denver, Colorado. Now, Topeka detectives reached out to her and asked where she was at the time her ex-husband was killed. She told investigators a version of her whereabouts that, under further investigation, detectives learned conflicted with other statements she had made to her friends. The one common thread, though, in every conversation was that Dana always maintained that she was in Colorado when Mike and Karen were killed. However, eight days after the murder, she was in Topeka, Kansas, for Mike's funeral when she was arrested on a child support warrant. As Kathy had mentioned, Mike was given full custody. And as a result, Dana owed Mike child support payments every month, which she had not been paying. Once she was arrested, her car was seized and searched, but no evidence linking Dana to the murders was found in her car.
1: So the year of the murders, the Topeka DA told investigators there was not enough evidence to put Dana on trial because there was nothing that could place her in Topeka when Mike and Karen were murdered. However, seven years later in 2009, a new Shawnee County District Attorney, Chad Taylor, began looking into the murders with his chief deputy district attorney, Jackie Spradling. Two years after that, Dana was arrested and charged with two counts of premeditated first-degree murder. Eight months later, which was almost 10 years after Mike and Karen were murdered, her trial began in the Shawnee County Courthouse in downtown Topeka, Kansas. Now, during her trial, which was in March of 2012, the prosecution had no DNA, no fingerprints, no blood, no bullet casings, no hair, nothing, no physical evidence connecting her. The prosecution's theory was that Dana was motivated by hatred and the knowledge that her ex would soon remarry. And most importantly, her motive was evidenced by her long history of stalking. Her children testified that she stalked Mike. Mike's brother and sister testified to that fact. And even some of Karen's relatives testified to that fact. Because she was stalked as well. Exactly. And it also included excessive phone calls and all that kind of nonsense. After deliberating for only 83 minutes, the jury found Dana Chandler guilty of the 2002 murders. She was sentenced to two life terms with parole possible only after 100 years.
2: Now, after her conviction, Dana filed an appeal with the Kansas Supreme Court. One of the items on appeal was the prosecutor's false statements to the jury. The lead prosecutor, Jackie Spradling, falsely told the jury that Dana violated a protection from abuse order, which is essentially a restraining order, that was issued in her and Mike's divorce case. During closing argument in the trial, Deputy DA Spradling told the jury that Mike got a protection from abuse order against Dana in 1998 and that Dana was dangerous enough for a judge to issue an order of protection. However, this was not true. Such an order never existed. The case went up on appeal and the defense asserted prosecutorial misconduct because of these representations. The Court of Appeals stated that in Deputy DA Spradling's argument to them, she doubled down on her assertion that the protection from abuse order existed, relying on the testimony of a detective. However... She knew that this detective was cross-examined during the trial and admitted that he did not actually know if a protection from abuse order existed. So she basically stood in front of the Kansas Supreme Court justices and lied. The court said in Chandler's case, there was no direct evidence of guilt and the record had no physical evidence placing Chandler at the crime scene. The false statements about this fake protection from abuse order helped the state fill in the blanks to its narrative. In April of 2018, the Kansas Supreme Court unanimously reversed Dana Chandler's two convictions for first-degree murder and remanded the case back to the trial court, citing Deputy DA Spradling for prosecutorial misconduct. Just over four years later, in May of 2022, the Kansas Supreme Court disbarred Jackie Spradling from the practice of law for engaging in intolerable acts of deception and a serious pattern of grossly unethical misconduct during the 2012 trial of Dana Chandler.
1: So here's the update. Dana's retrial began on August 5th, 2022, and it took place in the same courthouse In downtown Topeka. At this point, she was supported by the Miracle of Innocence Project, which it was reported paid for her attorneys. The Miracle of Innocence Project was started by Lamonte McIntyre and Daryl Burton, both of whom had served time for wrongful convictions and were subsequently exonerated. Kath, one served 23 years and one served 24 years. That's disgraceful. I know. According to their website, they seek justice and comprehensive care for the innocent. And one of the things that's interesting is they point out that convicted felons and felons on parole have support, but there are not people who advocate for those who are innocent, for those who have been exonerated and now leave prison. There's virtually no support. So, Miracle of Innocence helps with housing, therapy, jobs, all that kind of stuff. And in 2018, they helped advocate for the passage of a compensation law in the state of Kansas for those wrongfully convicted. So, they're paying her attorney's fees for her retrial. Dana's attorneys were Tom Bath and Trisha Bath. Now the prosecutors in the retrial did not admit any scientific evidence and again focused on Dana's motive. And the physical evidence of the case was limited to 11 shell casings and hair collected from the scene as well as a piece of chewing gum that was recovered from a neighbor's patio. DNA from the gum and limb hair, which was attached to one of the shell casings, did not match Dana. So here's what we learned in the retrial. We learned that only eight of the 11 shell casings were tested for DNA. We don't know why. We also learned that the Topeka police did not try to use a genealogy database for the DNA that they had tested. So what happened was the police took the 11 shell casings and now they want to send it to a lab to obtain fingerprints. So they sent it off to the United Kingdom. In the process, the shell casings were submerged in liquid solution. So even if there was DNA, it would have been destroyed and no fingerprints were produced. Wow, that was just a fail all around. And oh, by the way, no DNA tests have been done on any other hair that was gathered with a vacuum at the crime scene. There were some things that were undone, clearly. And of course, the defense on retrial brought them out.
2: Now, during the retrial, Topeka Detective Volley, the lead investigator and a big witness in the initial case, was brought back to the stand. He is the one who testified initially that a protection from abuse order was in place, but ultimately admitted that he had no idea if a restraining order had ever been issued in this case. On cross-examination at the retrial, the defense attacked the now-retired detective in order to detail his false testimony from the 2012 trial and try to impeach the prosecution's entire case. Now, a cornerstone of the defense at this retrial was to persuade the jury that police focused on Dana despite the lack of physical evidence placing her in the state at the time of the killings while ignoring evidence that pointed to other potential suspects.
1: Yeah, Kath, this is interesting because there were two men who had lengthy burglary records, and they were actually interviewed by police just to see were they potential suspects. And one of them was caught cashing a stolen check that belonged to Mike Sisko, correct? Exactly. Apparently, prior to the recent retrial, the defense found video of police questioning the two men in the months leading up to Dana's original trial. And so the defense also pointed out that there were no police reports written about these two men, nor was there any record that the police executed a search warrant at one of the men's houses, which apparently did occur. In any event, at the original trial, this information wasn't divulged. So kind of a big deal.
2: Yeah. In the retrial, after the defense rested and the prosecution was putting on its rebuttal case, a surprise witness was called to the stand that prompted a three-day recess in the retrial. Apparently, a woman named Mary Anderson called the Topeka Police Department on August 16th, 2022, more than 20 years after the murders of Mike Sisko and Karen Harkness, and told them that she was a witness. Topeka Detective Jason Deutsch interviewed Anderson for about a half an hour on Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. This was the day after recess was called.
1: Yeah. So, Kath, this lady comes forward and is interviewed nearly two weeks into the retrial, And by the way, I like the fact that the prosecution's Hail Mary witness is actually named Mary. Mary. (laughs) So what she testified to was that on the night of the murders in 2002, she had returned home early from a family reunion at Lake Shawnee to her apartment. And she testified that her apartment was across the street from the Harkness residence. Mary testified that she heard gunshots and minutes later, a woman dressed in all black with medium length hair snuck out of the Harkness residence. Now she is supposedly watching this from her home. She then told the jury that she saw this woman look around the street suspiciously before running to the car and speeding away. And Mary estimated that at this point, the woman who was sneaking away was no more than 50 feet from Mary. She also said she had no idea who the person was and never saw her before the night of the murder. But at the retrial, she identified the woman she saw that night as Dana Chandler. Mary was the only witness who placed Dana anywhere near the crime scene. So Mary claims that she called 911 shortly before midnight that night, the night of the murder, to report the gunshots and the suspicious woman in the neighborhood. But the police never came and interviewed her. On cross-examination, the defense got Mary to admit that she never spoke with investigators until the middle of the 2022 retrial. Defense brought out the fact that Mary Anderson's apartment was actually about two blocks west of Karen Harkness's house, which was more than 300 feet away from the crime scene, not 50 feet.
2: 300 feet is the length of a football field, right? It was dark. She's a football field away. And she saw all of these like furtive actions looking around suspiciously, what have you? Yeah. So after more than 60 witnesses during the four week trial, including dozens of experts and relatives of the victims on September 2nd, 2022, it was announced that after 40 hours of deliberation, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. Dana Chandler's daughter, Haley Seal, who has long maintained that she believes her mother killed her father, cried when she heard the verdict. Kath, Haley testified
1: against her mother in both trials.
2: So in September of 2022, the defense filed a motion to acquit Dana Chandler. The DA pointed out that seven members of the 12-member jury believed in her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and so the judge agreed and denied the motion. In fact... The DA then made the announcement that they would retry Dana Chandler for a third time.
1: Third time's a charm.
2: <laughs> for someone. <laughs> I don't know. Who. <laughs> now, according to court records, the defense actually did get one victory. Judge Rios reduced Dana Chandler's bond to $350,000 from $1 million, allowing her to post bail and leave jail for the first time in 11 years. So as part of her release, Dana was going to live with her sister and a nephew, and then her release included conditions that among them were kind of what you would expect. No contact with witnesses, no possession or consumption of alcohol or drugs, submitting to random drug tests. She was also required to get permission from the court to travel out of state, and she had to wear a GPS device.
1: According to an article in the Kansas Reflector, dated September 29th of 2022, by Sherman Smith, Judge Rios also granted the defense motion to change venue for the next trial. The article quoted Judge Rios as saying, We got through the trial by the skin of our teeth and acknowledged that it was clear that prospective jurors inadvertently were exposed to information about the case, making it extremely difficult to conduct another trial in Topeka on October 11th, 2022, Justice Caleb Stiegel ordered the trial to be held in the Pottawatomie County District Court. Which that was, was easy
2: for you to say. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's about 42 miles from Shawnee County. That
2: actually surprised According me. According to MapQuest. Yeah. <laughs> or Google Maps. Right. I don't think anybody uses MapQuest
1: anymore. <laughs> Whatever.
2: But I was actually surprised at such a short distance because you would assume in a state like Kansas, they're sharing media markets. Right. So why not go from one end to the other end?
1: Who knows? Anyway, her trial is currently rescheduled for February 6, 2023. However, it's probably going to get continued. Now that she's out, I'm sure the defense is not super in a hurry to retry her. And I've read articles in the papers that suggested they wanted a continuance so they could continue to gather exculpatory evidence. So we will keep you posted.
2: Now on to our next update. So we're now going to do an update on episode 18. This episode covered several homicides in the Virginia and Washington, D.C. areas in late 2021 that were attributed to a suspected serial killer who the police had dubbed the shopping cart killer. The police gave him this moniker because there were shopping carts found at or near the scene where the victim's bodies were discovered. In the episode, we discussed the arrest of Anthony Robinson on November 23, 2021 for allegedly murdering Aileen Beth Redman and Tanita Smith in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Video surveillance connected Robinson with both women and police had in their possession video of Robinson transporting his alleged victims to the empty lot in which they were found in plastic containers a short distance apart from each other with a shopping cart nearby. Cell phone data was also used to confirm Robinson's connection to both victims. Robinson was arrested
1: and charged with two counts of first-degree murder as well as two counts of felony concealing, transporting, or altering a dead body. Now authorities said Robinson found his victims on dating sites and then met them at area motels inflicting trauma on his victims before killing them. Now, autopsies conducted on Beth Redman and Tanita Smith were not able to determine the cause of death because of the um, decomposition. Thank you.
2: They were believed to have been strangled, but the decomposition around the neck prevented the medical examiner from being able to determine exactly what happened to them. Exactly.
1: However, their deaths were ruled a homicide. Robinson also remains a suspect in the deaths of two additional women who were found three weeks after Beth and Tanita were found. Fairfax County, Virginia police announced that the remains of these two women were positively identified as 48-year-old Stephanie Harrison of Redding, California, and 29-year-old Cheyenne Brown of Washington, D.C. And sadly, Cheyenne was pregnant at the time of her death. I remember that. So the remains of the two later women were found along Route 1 in Alexandria, Virginia, which is just outside the Washington, D.C. area. To date, Robinson has not been charged with the deaths of Stephanie and Cheyenne, but they are still investigating them.
2: So here's the update. Over the past six months, police have identified two additional women to these four who we've already named, whose murders they believe are also linked to Robinson. One woman was identified as Sonia Champ. She was discovered in Washington, D.C. in a shopping cart by a passerby who called 911. Digital evidence placed Robinson in the same vicinity around the time of Ms. Champ's disappearance. However, an autopsy was unable to determine the manner of her death. The Washington Post also reported that police are re-examining the 2018 death of a Maryland woman named Sky Allen. Sky Allen died on Valentine's Day in 2018 at the age of 30, and at the time, she was also Robinson's fiance. Both Skye and Robinson were living with Skye's mother in Maryland, and her mother told Prince George's County Police she found her daughter barely breathing in the bedroom Skye shared with Robinson. Sadly, Skye died a short time later at an area hospital. Now, according to a copy of her death certificate that was obtained by the Washington Post, Her cause of death was listed as fatal cardiac arrhythmia. In light of who her fiancé was, police are now looking into whether or not that was truly her cause of death. Prince George's County Police told the newspaper that the department was not notified of Allen's death in 2018 because it was not suspected of being a homicide, but they are now in the process of reviewing the case. So
1: two months ago, on November 6, 2022, a Rockingham County, Virginia judge approved defense attorney Lewis Nagy's request that his client, Anthony Robinson, undergo a sanity evaluation. In the motion, Nagy wrote that the allegations against Robinson, who is now 36 years old, were so egregious such that there is a reason to believe that the defendant's behavior was not rational at the time of the offense. Thank you, Mr. Nagy.
2: Exactly. Huh. (laughs) I wonder how he's going to plead. I could have told you that.
1: (laughs) Nagy also wrote that medical documents indicate Robinson, who remains in custody to this day and appeared at the hearing by video, has a history of mental illness dating back to at least 2014, which the defense hopes will create probable cause of insanity at the time that Mr. Robinson allegedly murdered these women. Deputy Commonwealth Attorney Christopher Bean did not object to Nagy's motion in the Rockingham County case. A forensic psychologist is expected to conduct the evaluation. And when the results are revealed, we will let you know. Bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone. And so do you.
2: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
1: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
2: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
1: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today.
2: This episode is episode 29, and this is the episode in which we discussed the 1987 murders of Jay Cook and Tanya von Kylenborg.
1: Yes, it's Tanya. It's not Tanya.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Jay, who was 20 at the time, and Tanya, who was 18, were from Saanich, British Columbia. They first met and became friends in high school and had been dating for about six months. On November 18, 1987, Jay and Tanya agreed to drive to Seattle, Washington to run an errand for Jay's father, who owned a heating business and needed some furnace parts. Their plan was to spend the night in the van and come home the next day. The couple did not return home as planned, and two days later, Jay and Tanya's families reported them missing.
1: Four days later, Tanya's half-naked body was found in a ditch just south of Bellingham, which is 90 miles north of Seattle. She had been raped, bound with plastic ties, and shot in the head at close range. Zip ties were found near her body. Investigators initially considered Jay Cook a suspect, though both his and Tanya's families vehemently rejected this possibility. Two days after Tanya's body was found, Jay's body was found in Snohomish County, about 70 miles south of where Tanya was found. He had been strangled and a pack of cigarettes was stuffed down his throat. Zip ties were also found near his body. Investigators had difficulty finding evidence because the crime scenes were so far apart. Nonetheless, inside the van, they found what would ultimately be the most important piece of evidence, the black pants Tanya had been wearing.
2: Crime scene investigators found semen on Tanya's pants, and testing showed that it did not belong to Jay Cook.
1: Remember, this is 1987, so they can basically exclude people, but it wasn't as definitive as it is now.
2: The suspect DNA was dubbed Individual A. In 2003, so now 16 years later, Individual A's profile was uploaded to CODIS, the FBI's National Offender Database, but there were no hits. Over the years, there were many theories and false leads, but unfortunately, they were all dead ends.
1: Kath, this was the one where some wacko wrote letters to the Van Kylenborgs Borgs and Cook families. You're right. Pretending to be the murderer. And he was just mocking the families and just contributing to this hell that these families were in without knowing who killed their loved one.
2: Right. It was awful. Horrible. Nearly 30 years later, in 2017, Washington police detective Jim Scharf heard about Parabon nanolabs using DNA to predict genetic traits. Parabon was hired to use this person's DNA, found on Tanya's pants, to create a composite sketch of the suspect at the ages of 25, 45, and 65. And if you're interested in knowing what they looked like, it's actually in our Instagram feed back when this episode first aired. Unfortunately, nobody came forward with a possible name.
1: It wasn't until the next year, 2018, that genetic genealogy was first used to narrow down a suspect using relatives found in a genealogy database. The first time this was used was to find the Golden State Killer. So at Detective Sharf's request, Parabon Nanolabs uploaded individual A's DNA into GEDmatch. Now that's what Parabon Nanolabs uses. It's a non-law enforcement DNA database and they create linkages to genetically related people. They also called in genetic genealogist CeCe Moore to work on the case. Now, she was the one who found the Golden State Killer. Is that right? That's right. Okay. She's pretty well known now, but back then she was just starting on her upward trajectory. So Ms. Moore was able to find two people who shared enough DNA with individual A to be second cousins. From there, and by the way, within two hours... She was able to build a family tree and determined that individual A was the male child of William and Patricia Talbot. Now, they had five children, only one of whom was male. So, the suspected killer of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenborg was William Earl Talbot II.
2: Bet Daddy doesn't like that he gave him his name now, huh? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no (laughs) kidding. Right out of a movie, Detective Scharf confirmed that the DNA left at the crime scene matched Talbot's after retrieving a coffee cup that Talbot dropped out of the door of his truck. I love that. It, I, it, it is too. like a movie. He had investigators following him. Yep. He didn't know. Right. And he opened his door, littered. Yeah. He was stopped
1: at an intersection yeah. <laughs> and he was drinking coffee and he just littered. Yeah. Like you said, tossed it, it out of the his window. window. No, no it he out, did. It was, out, it was out of a door. He, oh, he opened, opened the, the door. door. I'm way too lazy for that, man. My window <laughs> goes down, my automatic window, it gets tossed. But do you remember
2: when your window didn't used <laughs> to go down. Maybe that's what happened. When I had
1: to roll the window down, (laughs) I might have pushed the door open to litter.
2: but (laughs) So they didn't get him for littering, but what they did is they actually had to wait for him to go so they were out of sight. Right. They jumped out of their car, ran and got the cup, scurried on back, and then took it directly to the lab for testing. I know, that was totally awesome. So finally, after more than three decades searching for answers, Talbot was arrested and taken into custody. William Talbott II pleaded not guilty to two counts of aggravated murder. In June 2019, his trial began in the Snohomish County Superior Court. Now, Kath, this was the very first case ever to go to a jury trial where the suspect had been identified through genetic genealogy. Because, as you said, they first identified the Golden State Killer. Right. However, Talbott went to trial first. Right. And actually, that was part of the issue, as is they were concerned about how the courts would view this genetic genealogy as evidence. Exactly, because it had never been tested before, right? But the defense helped them
1: out. If you recall, the defense stipulated that it was his DNA found
2: on Tanya's pants. You remember right. that? I do remember that. Yeah, which took away the ability to appeal on that issue.
1: So, after a two-week trial, on the third day of deliberations, the jury found William Earl Talbot II guilty of two counts of aggravated murder. In 2019, he was sentenced to the mandatory requirement of two life terms in prison without parole, but Talbot maintained his innocence and appealed the verdict.
2: And now we get to the update. In his appeal, Talbot argued that his right to an impartial jury was violated because a juror called Juror 40 in court documents expressed actual bias and was seated and deliberated on his case. After Voidir, defense attorneys challenged Juror 40 for cause, but it was denied by the judge after individual voir dire by both parties. So basically, what happened is that defense attorneys have an ability to dismiss jurors for two reasons one is for cause, and one is a peremptory challenge. You can use cause in an unlimited number of times. Correct. However, you have only a specific number of peremptory challenges. Right.
1: A challenge for cause is somebody's bias or something that is going to make the jury process unfair or partial. A peremptory is like, uh, I get a bad vibe, I really don't like that juror or I'm right. not Right, they never
2: have to give a reason. Correct. correct. So on December 6, 2021, this is now more than two years after Talbot was convicted, the Washington State Court of Appeals reversed his conviction, citing juror bias. What the Court of Appeals thought was important is that during the selection process, juror Forty said, I'm an emotional person as it is, and I try to be very, very logical and methodical in decisions I make in my life and trying to see both sides of everything. But like I said, if it's a case involving violence and women, it's just something that I've already experienced in my life, and I fear that I will always inherently have as a mother. So that's just the one thing that I probably couldn't get past. Juror Forty added that seeing graphic photos, like the kind that were later presented at trial, might cloud her judgment. The Court of Appeals concluded that Juror Forty was not sufficiently rehabilitated such that Talbot was provided a fair and impartial jury.
1: So basically, the court of appeal was critical of the trial judge who should have said, juror number 40, can you set aside your bias and judge this case on the fact presented to you? And basically, the trial court never did that.
2: After the court of appeals ruling, Snohomish County prosecutors appealed that ruling to the state Supreme Court.
1: While this was up on appeal cap, there were a lot of newspapers that I read at the time that threw shade at juror number 40, basically alleging or implying that she planted herself on the jury to convict this guy. But when you read the appellate transcript, it is very clear that she was precise in the words that she chose. She was telling them that she had this experience in her background, but that she was hopeful and she would try to set it aside and look at the facts. Right. So here's the update. In December of 2022, the Washington State Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals decision and reinstated the guilty verdict. Chief Justice Stephen Gonzalez noted during the September 2022 oral arguments that juror number 40 had not made a statement that showed unquestionable bias or blatant conflict of interest. During jury selection, juror number 40 expressed doubts about her ability to be impartial. Still, she said she would try to be fair and said she was a fact-based person. In addition, this justice pointed out that Talbot's defense attorneys did not use their peremptory challenge to excuse her. So, on December 22, 2022, in a 9-0 decision, Justice Mary Yu wrote that the Supreme Court reaffirmed that if a party allows a juror to be seated and does not exhaust their peremptory challenges, then they cannot appeal on the basis that the juror should have been excused for cause. The case is next expected to return to the state court of appeals to address other legal questions raised by the defendant that were initially ignored by them. And they were ignored, Kath, because once the court of appeals found that juror number 40 was biased and this guy didn't get a fair trial, they said, oh, we don't need to decide these other issues. So now the state Supreme Court's like, oh, uh, yeah, you were wrong on the jury thing, so you better get to the other issues now. (laughs) (laughs) Talbot has remained in custody at the Washington State Penitentiary, Walla Walla, since his arrest in 2018. If the verdicts had not been reinstated, he would have faced another trial. Now he simply remains in custody. To this day, Talbot maintains his innocence.
2: Our next update is episode 11, in which we discuss the case of 12-year-old Janelle Matthews, who disappeared on December 20th, 1984. She was in the seventh grade, and that night she and a friend went to the annual Christmas concert at the middle school. Janelle was a member of the school choir and was excited about taking part in the choir and strings performance. She got a ride home from her friend's father, and when she got there, no one was home. Her father and sister had been at her sister's basketball game, and when they returned home an hour after Janelle was dropped off, so this is about 9.30 p.m., Janelle was missing.
1: Kath, I remember at the time doing this thinking immediately, like, oh, it's the friend's father. Mm -hmm. And it totally took me back to when I was babysitting, and at the end of the evening, they would have me some cash, and somebody would have to drive me home. It was always the dad. It was always the dad. I I would totally be like, please, 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 mom, drive me home. Exactly. Like, it was always so awkward being driven home by the dad.
2: Now looking back, I'm sure it's because he didn't want his wife out on the road late at night. Oh, yeah. No, totally. How many, a gentleman. Right. But how many blocks away did you live? Um,
1: One guy was not far and I told him I could walk home. It was maybe like three blocks. He would not let me of walk home. Not. I know because he was being responsible. To, all, right. I, all I wanted was to not be not in a car to with to the with dad. Him. Yeah. But here's the thing. Fast forward. We have kids. We have a babysitter who's super awesome. I would tell my husband, can you please drive her home? And like, but it's like, he's like, "Okay, fine. But I would usually do it just because it's like, I remember that pain. Right. It's (laughs) always awkward. It's always awkward.
2: Janelle's dad was the principal of a local elementary school. And when he got home that night, headed upstairs to see Janelle, he found her shoes in a blanket next to a space heater that Janelle had turned on in front of the TV, which is where she liked to hang out because it was warm. But when he went looking for her, he couldn't find her anywhere. So at this point, Janelle's father called the police.
1: Police immediately began searching for clues and eventually thousands of posters were distributed across the country by truckers. Janelle's parents went on national TV talk shows at the time and programs that highlighted missing children. Janelle was also one of the first children to be featured on the side of a milk carton, which, by the way, I always thought that was great marketing, and I wish they continued it. Then President Ronald Reagan even mentioned Janelle in one of his addresses to the nation, but nothing was ever found, and the trail went cold. Ten years after her disappearance, her parents, Jim and Gloria Matthews, had Janelle officially declared dead. Now, this was 1994. They held a funeral service for the family and friends who were finally given a chance to say goodbye. Her parents said they wanted to lay to rest any hopes of finding their daughter alive. Mrs. Matthews said, tonight is a time to say goodbye for us. It's a closure.
2: In an article on January 2, 2010, Mike Peters with the Greeley Tribune reported that Janelle's disappearance was still an open case in the Greeley Police Department, and Lieutenant Brad Goldschmidt said that Janelle's DNA had been uploaded into a national database. A photo from 1984, as well as an age-progressed photo of what she might look like at 37, was at that time on the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In December 2018, Greeley police announced on what was the 34th anniversary of Janelle Matthews' disappearance that they were picking up their investigation and hoped that modern technology would help them solve this long unsolved case. Seven months later, on Tuesday, July 23rd, 2019, construction workers who had been building a new pipeline in an oil field discovered a human skull with intact teeth that had braces. Two days later, Greeley police announced that the human remains had been confirmed as being those of Janelle Matthews, and the police were treating it as a homicide investigation. An autopsy confirmed that Janelle died from a single gunshot wound to the head.
1: One year later, in October 2020, a grand jury indicted Stephen Pankey in Meridian, Idaho, for premeditated first-degree murder, first-degree felony murder, and kidnapping with enhancements for using a weapon in the commission of a violent crime. Pankey lived in the Greeley area in the mid-1970s, where he was an active participant in the church choir at Sunnyview Church of the Nazarene, the same congregation that the Matthews family belonged to. And on the night Janelle went missing, he lived about two miles away from the Matthews' home. At that time, Pinky was 33 years old, married, and a father of a young son. His name was not new to police. Panky went to the Greeley police in January 1985, one month after Janelle disappeared, and claimed to be an ordained Baptist minister and said that he thought one of his parishioners could have been involved in her murder. Panky asked police for details of what they knew in the case so he could compare it with what he knew. According to the police, Panky had lied about being a Baptist minister. At the time, he was actually a car salesman in Greeley. That's close. Close.
2: Now, Kath, in addition to Panky going into the police department trying to find out background info, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: he inserted himself into this investigation over and over again.
1: And if you watch CSI, you know that's a big deal. (laughs)
2: I actually don't watch CSI. I don't either,
1: actually, <laughs> but my mom does. Laura loves it. She
2: does, she actually. She loves it. Police said that Panky continued to write letters to the district attorney's office about the case until 2013. Remember, this happened in 1984. And fewer than two months after Janelle's remains were found in 2019, Stephen Pankey told the Idaho Statesman newspaper that he was being investigated for Janelle's murder, but was innocent. Now, while searching Panky's condo in September 2019, authorities turned up more than 1,000 documents that mentioned Janelle's case. After that, Greeley police confirmed that he was a person of interest. One other interesting thing, Kath, is that before Janelle's body was found in 2019, Panky fancied himself a statesman and ran for governor of Idaho twice. 2014 and 2018.
1: Do you have any idea how he did in the polls? He I did, mean, obviously
2: he lost, but do you have any idea how he did? He did really poorly. He ran as a fringe candidate and they rarely get a significant number of votes. Right. So nearly a year after Panky was indicted by the grand jury, his trial began in October of 2021. After 15 days of testimony and two days of deliberation, on November 4th, 2021, the jury announced that they had been able to reach a guilty verdict on false reporting to authorities. But that's it. Now, Kathy, the false reporting charge was added the day before Panky's case went to the jury because Panky testified to lying about his involvement in the case while he was on the stand. So he's on the stand
1: and he's like, oh, by the way, I was a liar back when. Yes. I bet you anything his attorney was like, hey, dude, you can't testify. And he was like, no, 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 watch me. I'm going to fix this. And
2: I believe we said that at the time. Probably. So he was found guilty of false reporting to authorities. However, the jurors could not reach a unanimous verdict on the premeditated first-degree murder, felony murder, and kidnapping charges. A mistrial was declared on those three counts. For the false reporting to authorities, that's a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of six months. Panky had already spent more time than that behind bars and received credit for that time and was released from jail. And
1: now for the update. Following the mistrial, Weld County prosecutors decided to move forward with a second trial on the three remaining counts. Janelle's parents and sister were in the courtroom when opening statements began on October 7, 2022, almost one year to the day after his first trial began. Three weeks later, on October 28, 2022, so just a couple months ago, the now 71-year-old Stephen Pankey was found guilty by a jury of felony murder and second-degree kidnapping in the 1984 death of Janelle Matthews. Pankey was found not guilty on first-degree murder he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years on the murder and kidnapping convictions.
2: So at the age of 71, if he has a minimum of 20 years, chances are... This is life, exactly. After these convictions a couple of months ago, Jim Matthews, Janelle's father, said during victim impact statements that the family had been haunted by this case since her death 38 years ago. He said to Stephen Pankey... As these two trials have shown, you have been obsessed with your actions and your conscience could not let you forget. You have been a prisoner of your own mind. You've claimed to be a Christian on many occasions. There's still hope for you. It's not too late to confess your sins, which is the first step to your forgiveness. Gloria Matthews, Janelle's mother, said she could not forgive him for how he killed Janelle. She said God's the only one that can forgive evil, and she felt that he was evil. As we said at the beginning, happy 2023. We look forward to many podcasts with you going forward. Exactly.